Good afternoon and welcome to Living Permaculture on KDNK. I'm your host, Vanessa Harmony of Colorado Edible Forest Plant Nursery at Rivendell Farms in Glenwood Springs. I'm joined by my co-host, Jerome Osentowski of Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture Institute, or CRIMPY as we call it for short, in Basalt. On today's program, we are delighted to interview Claude Jolicoeur of Quebec City, Quebec. Claude is a cider maker, apple grower, engineer, research scientist, and author of multiple books and articles in English and French on the topic of cider and perry, which is cider made from pears. Claude's English language books available from Chelsea Green are The New Cider Maker's Handbook, which is a world-acclaimed reference on cider making, and Cider Planet, a journey of worldwide cider orchards and cultural practices. On today's episode, we'll discuss the methods behind Claude's award-winning ciders and explore the role of cider apples and wild apples in making what Claude calls the Prince of Beverages. Claude is joining us by telephone. Claude, welcome to the program. Yeah, my pleasure to be with you. Well, when I read the new Cider Maker's Handbook, one topic that really changed my perspective on cider is the difference between cider apples and dessert apples. Dessert apples are those that most Americans are familiar with. They're uh, large, fruited, they're free of blemishes, and oftentimes they're harvested early so that they store longer and better. Whereas cider apples might be small, they might have blemishes, and they might be allowed to ripen on the tree to the point where they're actually falling off the branches. Claude, can you explain to our listeners why the characteristics of cider apples result in better cider? Uh, Yes, well, there is an analogy which I often make with wine grapes, and somehow people tend to understand it more easily when it's about grapes. Uh, When you go at the food store and you want to buy some grapes for eating, it won't be the same varieties that you're going to use for making wine. And there are very good reasons for this. uh, the, The wine grapes are smaller, they're less pleasant to eat, but they have more tannins, they have more sugar, and they're really selected for the wine making. And also, you were never encountered, I'm sure, a wine that was made with flame seedless or Thompson grapes. You know, so we have specialized varieties for making wine and for making uh, eating grapes. And we see the same difference really with apples, mainly in the old traditional cider making regions, where the cider apples are selected with really two things in mind of the selector, the ability to perform in our industrial agri-food environment and to give a pleasing eating experience. While sea cider apples, for their part, really are selected for their juice properties. And what about some of the cultural practices in the orchards and possibly the fertilization practices? Well, these do affect the the properties of the juice that you get from the apple. And usually when you we are in this uh, industrial um, orchard environment, 
fertilization and other cultural practices tend to make bigger fruit, but bigger fruit usually goes with more water in the fruit, so you dilute the flavors by doing this, and you have less, uh, not as rich juice, not as rich a cider at the end. Well, it's appealing to know that what you call the lazy apple growers approach or the minimum intervention approach would actually produce better quality fruit for cider production. And I think of the saying that you can't judge a book by its cover. So what some people might consider to be an ugly looking apple might actually have some wonderful flavors waiting inside to be turned into cider. Yes, and... uh one of the things that I often see say is that the cider drinker never sees the apples that are used for making the cider in question. So yes, the grower doesn't need to care for the appearance of the fruit, so there'll be much less chemicals and um, much less intervention that's necessary to produce the cider apples. And you also discussed uh, the effect of um, pest pests on the apples, and um, the pest pressure can actually also produce better flavors. Yes, uh, scab and other sicknesses and some uh, insect lesions can change the flavor of the fruit and may produce some more complex flavors. But all this, there is a limit for this. I mean, uh, in the sense that if you have completely scabby apples or apples that are completely destroyed by the insect uh, lesions, well, that's not usable anymore. So uh, there is a limit to that. Let me uh, ask you, um, so if you had an orchard that was infested with codling moth, you wouldn't be able to sell those apples on the market per se, but you could make cider with those and they actually would be fine? Yes, but the problem with calding moth is usually uh, the affected apple will uh, just drop before being ripe. So uh, this can be pretty much devastating because it can ruin a good part of your crop. I do have just a little bit of, of that pest in my own orchard, but the apples that do ripen, even if there's a calding moth scab, are okay for making the cider. Well, getting back to some of the cider apple varieties, Claude, you wrote that it wasn't till around the 1970s that some cider apple varieties started to be imported into the United States. Do you think now in the United States there is more representation of cider apple varieties? Yes. Well, actually, uh, what you're saying is not fully exact. I mean, it's during the 70s that European cider varieties uh, made their way to North America. But uh, we have to know that during the 1800s, there were quite a few native American cider varieties. And some of these are now uh, being planted again by cider makers, and they are really uh, coming back. Uh, and I'm thinking here about uh, the Harrison apple in particular, which was famous in the 1800s and is now being planted a lot in the United States. So uh, it is changing. More and more uh, cider makers are using some either European cider varieties 
more ancient uh, original American cider varieties or wild apples also are being used more and more by cider makers. I noticed in your book you feature several varieties, and some of them are familiar to me. I have got some of those in my orchard. And they're, you know, some of the uh, heirloom apples that most people have are good for cider. And also you can mix and match and use pretty much a whole variety if you're just trying to match the sugar and acidity pretty much, aren't you? Yes, yes. You're looking for the balance in your blend. And for me, it makes perfect sense to use some uh, North American eating apples in a certain portion of, of the blends, as long as you have in your blend also other apples that will bring the tannins in and other properties that you're looking for from making your cider. And that allows you to use a lot a lot of uh, apples that might, like say in, in our valley, there are a lot of apples that don't get picked. And over in Paonia, there's a lot of orchards that don't get picked. So anyone who'd want to do cider could go over there and get those apples for free and yeah, mix them sure. with some cider apples that they grow on their orchard and get a whole a truckload of... You can make a fantastic cider by using, let's say, 50% of uh, eating apples that are not grown in an industrial orchard but are more on older more neglected trees, and add to that uh, 50% of uh, true cider varieties will bring a lot of tannins, and you can make incredible blends of that, really great ciders. You explain in your book that ideal cider apples have high sugar, medium acidity, and medium tannin, but there are very few apples that have those proportions just in a single apple which is why uh, most people yeah. tend to blend them, and which is also why we shouldn't overlook wild apples for cider making. And as Jerome mentioned, we have a lot of neglected apple trees that have were seedlings from a discarded or a digested apple core, or that may have been part of a historic orchards or homesteads that now have been abandoned or subdivided. So it's good to know that these have the potential for delicious cider. Well, yes, they do, sure. And uh, actually, it also goes with the question of style of the cider that you want to make. If you're trying to make a typical cider as it is made in Brittany in France, for example, or in the West Country in England, it'll be more difficult to use those apples because these typical ciders are really very bitter and they're sort of entirely done with high bitter apples. But a North American style is not like that. A North American style, there's more acidity and there's less bitterness. So there's place to use those, those varieties which are more like eating apples in the blend. But you still need to have some apples that will bring in some tannins that you might not have from those eating apples, but you can find that in the wild apples or in the crabs, for example. And usually you'll also need some varieties that will decrease the acidity of your blend. When you make a cider, you need to have less acidity than when you eat an apple. When you eat an apple, all the sugar is there to balance the acidity from the apple. Or if you 
drink a fresh juice, the same. It's got the full sugar of the apple that balances the acid. But when you ferment this into a cider, the sugar disappears. It's transformed into alcohol, so it's not there anymore to balance the acidity. So a good cider blend should have less acidity than a good juice that you're going to drink. So this is important also when we taste the juice from a juice test, for example, from a surgeon apple. It should not be as acidic as the juice that you're going to drink as a fresh juice. Can you tell us more about when you're hunting for wild apples or evaluating apples for cider quality? What characteristics do you look and taste for? Uh, Yes, Uh, there's quite a, a few steps that you need to follow before you can say, well, this apple is really great for making cider. I have the chance where I live to have a lot of wild apple trees. Uh, There's a small forest. There are 1,500 wild trees in a site that's about 10 minutes away from where my orchard is and where I go there every year and select new apples there every year. When you arrive in a site where there are a number of wild trees, the first screening you do is by tasting uh, tasting the apples. And you're going to reject maybe two-thirds of the wild trees with just because they're overly acidic. And this acidity is so high that it makes the apple unfit for cider making. So these are very easy to eliminate. And you'll retain those that have just a mild to medium acidity on sensation when tasting the apple. And you also want to taste some tannin. And that expresses itself either by some bitter flavor or by some dryness sensation that's given by the astringency. And you also want some persistence in the flavor of the apple. In other words, uh, I like it when I take a bite from the apple and I can still taste it uh, a few minutes after swallowing it. You know, it, it's still present. It stays present there for a long time. And that's a sign that there, is, there are some tannins in there. Well, it's, it's almost like wine tasting then. <laughs> oh, yes, it's quite similar. Yeah. And uh, finally, you'll try to select those that have more sugar. You can taste the sugar, and you're going to select those. So... At this stage, maybe you you tried 10 trees. Uh, you probably rejected eight of them. And maybe you can take a sample bag, maybe uh, five pounds from the two better ones. And then you go home with that and you take a small press and you make a, a small uh, juice test. And with this juice test, you can take your hydrometer or a bricks tester and an acidity tasting kit, and you're going to measure the sugar, the acidity, and then you're going to taste the juice for its flavor and tannin content. And yeah, at this stage, if one really shows nice promise from the test, uh, you can go back and pick more and make uh, uh, make it in your cider blend for for that year. So these are uh, sort of the steps that you need to follow when you you get on a site where there are wild trees and you, you 
need to select the, the most interesting ones. And then you need to go back next year, following year, because so often it happens you have a tree that first time you go, nice apples there, and you find it year after, well, no apples. You go the year after, there are five apples. And you realize that this tree is really unproductive, so it's no use uh, continuing to evaluate that tree if it's not productive. And after a few years of consistent good use properties and good productivity, well, then you can graft it in your orchard and see how it goes in an orchard environment. So that's another evaluation that you need to do. And after that, you can name it and distribute it to your friends so that other people may test it. And, uh, yeah, all this is quite a lengthy process. Yeah, well, that makes it uh, interesting, I think. And that's what fascinates us about some of these old apple orchards. I mean, some of the trees are 120 years old. And in some of these orchards, uh, the ones I really like are the ones that keep forever. Uh, there's one called the Parker Corner Apple. And... I got it. It must be two, two and a half feet in diameter, and it has a really hard Rome apple on it that's very late to ripen, and it keeps like forever. Uh, I think it would probably be a good cider apple. Would a a long storing apple necessarily be good for cider since it takes a long time for the sugars to develop, or would you maybe consider storing it first before you press it for cider? No, not necessarily. I mean. What's the important is to press the apple when it is has the right ripeness. So uh, an apple like uh, Jerome was describing, you might have to wait until midwinter to press it because uh, it's going to it's too hard and uh, not ripe enough uh, during fall. It, it'll take some time to mature and be ready for pressing. So it's not necessarily better. It's just a question of uh, adjusting the timing for the varieties that you have. Have you domesticated and named any wild apples that you now have grafted and grow in your orchard? Well, from that site I was describing you, where I go every year, I now have eight of them that are grafted in my own orchard, but these are not named yet. And there are other wild apple populations near where I live, from where I have started much earlier to evaluate them. And there are about five or six that are named yet and are grafted in my orchard and uh, still under evaluation, yes. Oh. My favorite maybe is called the Douce de Charlevoix. Well, it's sort of my emblematic apple, but mainly because it's the first one that I discovered. It was really interesting for my making cider. But the more it goes, the more I understand that it really needs my harsh climate and difficult conditions to give the best because other people that have tried it in more favorable conditions, well, they find it ripens too early and uh, it doesn't have that much sugar either. So it requires difficult conditions to, uh, to be great. Well, that's interesting. Every apple has, has its own uh, personality. How do you suppose those apples got into that planting they're talking about? Was, would Johnny Appleseed get up there and uh, plant those like he did? Um? Well, 
at, <laughs> at the end of the 1800s, they planted an orchard there, uh-huh. a small orchard of the varieties that were often grown in farm orchards in this area. And this is sort of the base of a small mountain that's populated with bears. And they abandoned the orchard quite rapidly because uh, it wasn't very economically interesting. At that time, roads started to be better and the apples from better apple-growing regions came by truck and people, a lot of people abandoned their orchards during that period. But the beers went and started eating the apples and on the way back to their quarters in the mountain, they just threw the apple trees with their droppings. And the trees grew very well and we have sort of three generations of trees now. The bigger ones being the direct seedlings from the original orchard And now we have second generation and third generation from those trees, from the first trees. From the deer spreading them? The bears. The bears. Bears, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bears are the most important propagator in this particular spot. Uh, In other areas, uh, deers may be good or uh, different animals, but in this particular spot, it's the bears that have propagated the trees. That makes sense that the bear would just go ahead and scatter these apples far and wide. Well, actually, in Kazakhstan, which is the place of origin of the apple, scientists have determined that it's the local bear that has made the, the selection to arrive to the modern apple from a very small apple that was the first apple and the bear systematically selected the larger fruit and the sweeter fruit for eating. And uh, what the scientists say is that a seed that has gone through the guts of a bear and end up in its dropping has better chances into developing in a tree than a seed that was not eaten by a bear. So all this adding together, the beer has been the selector for bigger and sweeter fruit. And with uh, thousands of years later, we end up with the modern apple. What's the history of the first apple trees back there? And that's where they originated from? Well, uh, what I understand is that uh, at the base of those mountains, it sort of escaped the uh, the last glaciation. So it goes all the way to that period for the original species. And then uh, it evolved with, with the help of the bear. It evolved into the modern apple. But it took tens of thousands of years to, to do that. That's amazing. And other than the enjoyment of drinking cider and uh, getting to travel the world? Are there any other aspects of cider making and apple growing that have contributed to your passion for it? Oh my God, it it has been growing with time, you know. Uh, In the beginning, I really just started making cider because I didn't know what, what else to do with the apples that grew on my property. And well, 
that was in 1989 when I started making my first ciders. And then, yeah, with time, it changed my life. I started writing books, traveling around the cider-making regions, and uh, being a speaker at conference or judge at competitions everywhere. So it really changed my life. Well, we knew, unfortunately, that our time would go quickly today with so many fascinating topics to talk about, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to add any closing thoughts, Claude, before we end our program. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah I could end up with, with that question of changing your life. Uh, yeah, if you want to start making cider, be aware that this activity may be highly addictive. <laughs> it can change your life entirely. And, uh, yeah, I'll close this with the story I got from a guy when I was at the CiderCon, which is a big cider conference organized by American Cider Association every year. And there's this guy that came to me uh, thanking, saying thanks for what I've done and so on. And then he explains me that he was in prison for a few years because he had done obviously something bad and while he was there a friend of his gave him my uh, cider maker's handbook so he read it when uh, he was in prison and when he got out of there he became a professional cider maker so he also had his life changed by cider making yeah nice story that's so inspiring Well, if our interview has piqued our listeners' interest in cider, I highly recommend Claude's book, The New Cider Maker's Handbook, so that you may also become addicted. And in The New Cider Maker's Handbook, Claude discusses cider making practices, growing practices, and varietal selection for cider apples, cider pressing, and then the nitty-gritty about actually brewing the cider. And then for a tour of worldwide cider making, I encourage our listeners to check out Cider Planet. These two books by Claude Jolicoeur are available from Chelsea Green Publishing. Our listeners can learn more about Claude's work and find a great wealth of resources, including articles, presentations, and instructions and photos for constructing your own cider press on Claude's website, C-J-O-L-I-P-R-S-F. C-A. Once again, that's C-J-O-L-I-P-R-S-F dot C-A. Claude, thank you so much for your time today and for educating us and our listeners about your fantastic work. Well, that was a pleasure. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Once again, I'm your host, Vanessa Harmony of Colorado Edible Forest in Glenwood Springs. You can find my contact info at coloradoedibleforest.com. My co-host is Jerome Osentowski of Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture Institute. And you can get in touch with Jerome and Crimpy by visiting crmpi.org. Tune in next month on KDNK on the third Monday of March at 4 p.m. for another episode of Living Permaculture. We'll talk to you then. Hey.